So, hi everybody and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, it's my honor and pleasure to have on the show Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Virginia and a researcher and author on near-death experiences and other states of consciousness. So, Bruce, welcome on the show. And could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your work? Thank you, Simon. I'm delighted to be here with you today on Psychology 360. Um, as you said, I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Virginia. I've been um, practicing psychiatry and teaching in medical schools for the past half century. I have to say that I started out in a scientific household. My father was a chemist and I was raised as a hardcore materialist, mm -hmm. never thinking that there was anything beyond the physical world. It's not that my family was anti-spiritual or anti-religious. It just never came up in our family. We lived in a world where what you see is what you get. And I went through college and medical school thinking I was going to be a hardcore scientist like my father was. And then in my first few months of my internship in psychiatry, I was confronted by something I couldn't understand. I saw a patient in the emergency room that I was asked to evaluate and she was completely unconscious presumably as a result of an overdose. Mm. I tried to examine her, but I couldn't talk with her. But her roommate had waited down the hall in a, another room about 50 yards down the hall from, to talk to me. So I went down there and talked to her for a while and then ascertained that the patient was going to be admitted to the intensive care unit because her heartbeat was irregular. When I talked to her the next morning to see how she was doing, I introduced myself and she said, yes, I remember you from last night. I know who you are. And that surprised me because I thought she was unconscious. So I, I asked her, you might said, you mean someone told you I talked to you last night? I said, no, I saw you. Well, that kind of threw me because as far as I could tell, she was out cold. And at that point, she opened her eyes for the first time, looked at me and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate. And then she went on to tell me everything her roommate and I said to each other and what we were wearing, including some embarrassing details that I didn't think anyone possibly knew. And this really threw me. Here I was just a few months out of medical school, trying to be a competent doctor and totally thrown for a loss here. I couldn't explain this at all. Uh, I just kind of pushed it out of my mind. I didn't have time to deal with it at that point. I was trying to help her. And I pushed it out of my mind successfully for a few years until I met Raymond Moody, who had written a book called Life After Life in which she used for the first time in English, the term near-death experiences. And when I read this, this book and talked with him, I realized that sounds like what this patient had had a few years earlier. And it struck me that this wasn't just a one-off thing. This was a common experience. So I started looking into it. And the more I looked into it, the less I could understand. And as a scientist and as a skeptic, that made me want to dig in farther to try to understand what's going with this, on with this. And here I am 50 years later, she's still trying to understand it. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's quite the story. And I have to say, just from a, a personal experience, I've had uh, what you're describing sounds also like a, like an outer body experience where the person, basically the consciousness shifted and this person was experiencing, uh, you know, see, seeing you from the outer outside of the body. 
And personally, I've experienced that once uh, spontaneously uh, over a decade ago, and it, it changed my life. It changed my mm. whole perspectives. And um, before then, I was, uh, I, I would say, beyond materialistic. I was uh, uh, nihilistic. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, from, from that day on, and it was, uh, it was quite remarkable because I, I left, I, I traveled, I could see uh, things in a totally different perspective when I left my body. I could go through walls and, uh, and this was uh, quite the life changer for me. So, yeah. And basically this was your first introduction to, to this concept and later on, what, what else, I mean, this, this must've shaken you quite a bit and what else happened that brought you into this, this field? Well, it did, it did shake me up quite a bit. You know, you said that you had your experience yourself Yes. Uh, so yeah. it was impossible for you to deny that, but I didn't have it myself. This patient had it. So I still could try to tell myself, this is just kind of a trick. I don't know how she knew these things, but she couldn't possibly have left her body. As far as I could tell, I was my body. I had never left it. Um, so I wasn't sure that this didn't have some simple mechanistic explanation until I encountered Moody a few years later and quickly found that there were many, many other cases exactly like hers with even more details that I couldn't understand. Hmm. Um, so I started looking into that and it was, there wasn't one aha moment for me. It was just a gradual realization that there was a lot more going on here than I had been, been led to believe was, was going on. Certainly the materialistic worldview helps us explain normal everyday life pretty well. The idea that the mind is totally a product of the, of the brain. But when you get to extreme circumstances like a near-death experience, that model sort of breaks down and you need to look farther than that. Right. And this, I mean, this topic is, is basically the, en- the essence of consciousness, where is consciousness purely uh, a, a creation of the brain? Is it purely generated by the brain or is consciousness something else? And I guess what, what you're getting at is you've you know, these experiences and the work of Dr. Moody also opened up, you know, kind of started chipping away at this, uh, you know, strict worldview. And did it give you, uh, did it give you some kind of spiritual uh, opening? Or was it something that you thought as well, like, well, maybe there's a way of healing, uh, of working with people uh, beyond the paradigm of um, biology and, and, and medicine, or what, what was your uh, what was your your intuition, or what came to you then? Well, as I said, I was raised without any background in spirituality or religion, so I didn't really have a context for talking about spirituality. Um, all I knew was that my materialistic model of the world wasn't adequate to explain these experiences. And I started looking around for other, other models. And I quickly found um, that the idea that the mind is not created by the brain is not a new one by any means. In fact, 2000 years ago, the Greek physician Hippocrates wrote that the brain is the interpreter or the messenger of the mind. And this has been recorded, repeated by uh, neuroscientists for centuries now, that it's, it's sort of a... Um, a minority opinion among neuroscience for quite a while. And now there's increasing evidence for it. It comes not only from near-death experiences, but other uh, 
experiences in which the mind seems to be functioning sometimes better than ever when the brain does not seem to be functioning. Let me give you another example. Sometimes people who have advanced Alzheimer's disease or other dementias and have not been able to communicate or recognize family for years suddenly become totally lucid again in the moments before they die or sometimes hours before they die. They recognize family, carry on coherent conversations. It doesn't last long and then they pass on. And as far as we can tell, there's no way a brain with advanced Alzheimer's disease can regenerate itself. So we can't explain this uh, reemergence of consciousness, of communication skills, of memories, when the brain does not seem to be functioning. We also have neuro neuroimaging evidence from the past decade or so of people who have psychedelic drugs that induce elaborate mystical states. We used to think that what these drugs do is stimulate the brain to hallucinate. But this neuroimaging from a variety of labs over the past decade have shown that these mystical experiences under psychedelic drugs are associated with a decrease in brain activity, both in terms of the electrical output of the brain and in the connectivity between different parts of the brain. So we have evidence from a variety of phenomena that the mind sometimes is not totally linked to the brain. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is groundbreaking stuff for many listeners who may have not been exposed uh, or read about this type of theory. They could be quite uh, quite surprised by by this. And mm. I mean, I did read about it. And in fact, what what was uh, what, what was coming through my mind uh, when you were uh, describing this and the psychedelic uh, experiences with the and the MRI studies, for example, uh, was uh, Stanislav Grof who yes. is, uh, is actually a, uh, originally from the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia. Yes. And he, um, he gave a lecture a few years back at the Beyond Psychedelics conference here, which I attended. And he did uh, talk about these things as uh, getting, you know, the, the uh, paradigm of neurology moving back to the idea that the mind or that the brain is more like a transmitter or like, uh, you know, like a radio receiving signals, rather than this uh, kind of generator of uh, consciousness. Now, how much how much um, skepticism do you encounter when you bring forward these points? Because it seems to me that, um, you know, these these ideas, even if you, when you have research to to back your claims, it's almost like you are attacking uh, someone's uh, personal religion. And in this case, I would call it this uh, materialistic or scientism. Uh, how, do you, how do you react to that? Or what's your experience? Well, of course, there's resistance. I feel a resistance myself because I was raised with a materialistic mindset. But we have to remember that there are scientific facts, such as the fact that the mind sometimes seems to be functioning when the brain is not. And there are theories we develop to explain how the mind works. And although the facts are usually right, although they're always subject to contradiction later on, we find more facts, the theories are not. None of our theories about how the mind works, how, how we work, are ever totally correct. At best, they're better than the previous theories we had. But we're always getting a little closer to the truth and never quite reaching it. So we can't get too wedded to our theories 
Uh, we need to go back to the original data and stick with them rather than the models we have to develop them. Right. And, and you know, going back to what you mentioned with these moments of clarity um, before people die and even people who have uh, neurodegenerative diseases, yes. uh, this is something that's been kind of uh, anecdotally told to me, even in my family, there were instances of, um, of people like relatives dying. And right before death, they would have this very lucid uh, experience. And, and even sometimes uh, there was a story of, of a great grandmother of mine who um, had this kind of intuition that her, her son had died. Uh, and she, you know, of course, she had no evidence of this. But right before her passing, she she had this intuition, which was totally unexplained and, and nobody believed her, of course, but after it turned out to be true. So, uh, it, you know, these are these are kind of things that I, I think most people, well, I don't know about most people, but a lot of people um, know about or have been exposed in a kind of anecdotal sense or folk folklore sense. Um, but I guess here we're, we're crossing the boundaries, right? We're getting in, right? Yeah, we're reconnect, maybe we're becoming more holistic. Huh. Yeah, you're right that that we've known for centuries about these people who regain their consciousness in the moments before death. Um, and if you talk to nurses who work in hospice units, they will say, Oh, sure, we see that all the time. But there's almost nothing written about it in the medical literature. Hmm. A, a German scholar, Michael Nam, and I surveyed the literature of the past couple hundred years, and we found a total of 80 isolated cases in the literature, mostly from Germany, but also from other European countries and the U.S. But there was never any coherent explanation for how these things can happen. And it's not just Alzheimer's, it's schizophrenia, brain abscesses, a variety of, of brain diseases. And now recently, uh, the National Institute of Health in, in the United States convened a working paper to um, explore these phenomena. And they are now soliciting uh, grants to study this phenomenon, which they're calling paradoxical lucidity. Hmm. You mentioned your, your grandmother seeing someone who was dead, but not known to be dead. Uh, that raises another question. I mean, if we establish that the mind can sometimes work without the brain, or when the brain doesn't seem to be operating, that doesn't necessarily imply that the mind can continue after you die. It could be, I suppose, that the mind can function independent of the brain as long as the brain is still in existence. However, when you start talking about people as they come close to death, seeing deceased loved ones, that's a different matter because sometimes these loved ones have been dead for quite a while, and yet they still seem to be around to be interact with us. And it's not like just seeing a ghost, it's actually interacting and getting information from them. Let me give you an example. Uh, a fellow I, that I uh, got to know quite well uh, was a 26 year old uh, engineer uh, living in, in South Africa, his native country. And he had a very serious pneumonia that put him in the hospital. Um, this was back in the, in the 1970s when, he had, when we had more primitive um, methods of treating pneumonia, and he was in an oxygen tent for quite a while. And he had a nurse who was slightly younger than he was, who was in some ways flirting with him. They got to be pretty close. And at one point, she told him 
this is my 21st birthday this weekend. I'm going to be away for a while, and someone else will be taking care of you. Um, so she left. He bid her goodbye. And shortly after that, over the weekend when she was gone, he had a respiratory arrest. His lungs stopped working. He had to be resuscitated. And during this near-death state, he had a profound near-death experience where he left his body, went to some other realm, found himself in a beautiful garden. And there, to his great surprise, he saw this nurse, Anita. And he shocked, he said, what are you doing here, Anita? And she joked with him and said, well, I came to fluff up your pillows like I always do. But you have to go back now. And you have to tell my parents that I love them very much. And I'm sorry, I wrecked the red MGB. And then she walked off. And he woke and found himself back in his hospital bed. When he woke up, he told the first nurse he saw about this experience. And she ran out of the room crying. It turned out that his nurse had in fact been given by uh, a red MGB by her parents for her birthday and was so excited she jumped in it, took off down a hill and crashed into a telephone pole and died instantly. Now, there's no way he could have known that she was dead when he had this experience, let alone the specifics of how, and yet he did. And when the, the staff asked him, how did you know these things? He said, she told me. Now, it's hard to explain that away in a materialistic framework. Um, yeah. Somehow he knew this information, and in his perception, it was because she gave it to him. Right. Yeah. And, and this is this is uh, absolutely and well, it, some may say it's inexplicable, but trying to play devil's advocate. And let's say we're trying to just stick with the materialistic uh, worldview. It may just be that that we, you know, we are unaware. Or we don't know the potential that humans actually have in terms of um, you know, sending out, you know, how our brain, how our, our thought processes work, like in, t- in terms of uh, trying to communicate um, without, without words, uh, you know, like things like this. And here we get, and, you know, and, and since I am also a, a psychologist, we're getting into taboo subjects, which I don't mind. Um, but I think, <laughs> You know, because when you start flirting with with the the boundaries between psychology and parapsychology, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with it. But it is, right. yeah, it is, it is something of that. And and I actually had a, another uh, question that is not directly related to NDEs, but uh, I know that at the University of Virginia there was another um, researcher as well named Ian Stevenson. Is that yes. correct? And. Were you associated yes, right. in any way with Ian yes. Stevenson and his yes, research? Yes, yes, I knew him quite well. Yes, yes. Okay, and and the two. So, how what was there a meeting ground between the near death experience, uh, you know, research, and maybe some of the stuff on the you know reincarnation memories and things like that? Right. Well, Ian Stevenson actually studied a number of um, uh, inexplicable mind-brain anomalies. Um, and one of them, in fact, was near-death experiences, although he didn't have the name for them back in the, in the 60s when he was studying these things. Um, but when I found out about near-death experiences, I went to him and said, have you ever heard of these? And he had never heard the name, but he certainly had lots of cases, which he had filed under 
uh, different categories such as out-of-body experiences or apparitions or uh, you know, crisis experiences, but they were familiar to him. But most of his work was done with very young children, three, four, or five years old, who spontaneously started talking about a past life. Yeah. And in many of these cases, he was able to track down the person that the child remembered having been in a past life and confirm that a lot of the things that ch the children said were verified by that deceased person's family. And again, this is something that we don't have an explanation for. Now, you mentioned that when we talk about things that border parapsychology, we get very uncomfortable. Well, that's true. But that discomfort with the facts doesn't mean we should deny that they exist. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, may, it may be that there is some materialistic or mechanistic explanation that we just haven't come up with yet. But saying that is not a scientific position. That's a philosophical position. If you say, well, someday we'll know the scientific explanation for it. No, that's not scientific because there's no way of disproving it. You can always say, well, we haven't gotten to that someday yet. That's like saying God did it. There's no way of disproving it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm just, I was just trying to, you know, conjure some kind of devil advocates uh, uh, response. Sure. But yeah, that, that's, um, that makes sense. And I would, I would like to ask you, since you are a psychiatrist, how do you incorporate? Cause I saw that, I saw that you, you've made a questionnaire in terms of yes. near-death experiences. You've published that. How do you incorporate uh, this type of, these types of findings and this type, uh, this type of worldview in working within, let's say, a clinical setting? Uh, well, I don't directly raise it with most of my patients because I, I don't want to impose my beliefs or my experiences on the patient. My job is generally to bring out their understanding of what happened to them. Mm -hmm. um, it would be like if I had a strong religious belief, I wouldn't want to use that to explain to my patients what was going on with them. I do find, however, that a lot of patients who are dealing with death-related issues, whether that's thinking about suicide or dealing with bereavement, it can be very comforting to them to know about near-death experiences. So if they show some awareness of that or ask about it, I will certainly share what I think I know about it. But I'm very tentative about that because I'm not certain about any of these things. Right. You know, you mentioned all the skepticism and, you know, I have a lot myself. I don't fully understand these things. I'm pretty convinced that the materialistic model is not the correct one, or at least not the whole story. It may be a partial explanation the way Newtonian mechanics is a partial explanation for, for the physical world. But materialism is not the whole story, but I don't know what it is. I don't have a great explanation for how these things can happen, of how the mind can survive death of the body. Right. And, but in, and in terms of what you've found and what you, what you're researching, does this personally give you a, like a, a faith in the afterlife or, you know, the, that, that you will like that some part of consciousness will survive afterwards. I mean, it has to, and the way I, I asked that before in terms of patients, well, I guess it's different when you have a pure materialistic worldview and you see, um, you know, you see humans as simply, let's say, machines or some kind of 
uh, other reductionistic uh, category uh, rather than something that, you know, a, an entity which has much more potential, it kind of transcends, right? What you do, how you interact with others. Right, right. Right. If you try to impose <clears throat> your own model on what the patient experienced, that can do them a lot of harm. Yes. And that applies when you try to impose a religious uh, interpretation of what they say or a purely me mechanistic one, a, me a materialistic one. I've had many people tell me that they tried to talk to their doctor about their near-death experiences, and they were told, oh, that's just the drugs you were given, or you were just delirious. And they know that's not the case, and it only makes them alienated from the doctors. It does not help them heal at all. Yes, yes, definitely. And, and personally, for you, do you now believe, because I mean, you come from quite the, uh, as you said, the materialistic, uh, atheistic background or agnostic, maybe you didn't specify, but right. does that give you a more of an assurance in uh, life after death or how has it impacted your own personal uh, existential views, let's say? Well, it certainly affected me greatly, but I think uh, words like faith and assurance are too strong. Um, but I will say this, you know, most people who have a near-death experience and talk about an afterlife of some form will start off by saying, there are no words to express what I experienced. And then we, of course, say, great, tell me about it. Uh, so we force them to use words knowing that that's distorting the experience. And they will use whatever metaphors they have available to them. And often those are religious metaphors. What other words do we have to talk about the afterlife? We talk about heaven, although these people who have near-death experiences will often say, well, it, it was like heaven, but not the way heaven was taught to me in church. Mm -hmm. Or they'll say, I met this, this warm, loving being, and I don't know what to call it. I'll call it God so I can, so I can talk to you about it, but it wasn't the God that I, was, that I thought was going to be there. So I know that all these words we use to describe the afterlife and the deity are just rough approximations. They're, they're metaphors that we use that don't really get to the real thing. And I've talked to people from lots of different cultures now who have had near-death experiences, and they use different words. You know, this warm being of light that seems to generate unconditional love. If you talk to someone with a Christian background, they may say, that was Christ or that was God. If you talk to someone from a different perspective, they will not use those words. So, um, you know, this, not, this is not just true of the, uh, the more heavenly aspects of it. Most people describe in a near-death experience going through a tunnel of some sort, a long, dark, enclosed structure. And people who live in third world countries where there aren't as many tunnels are not likely to use that. They may say, I went into a cave or a well. One person I interviewed who was a truck driver talked about being sucked into a long tailpipe. That was the way he described the tunnel. So they use whatever metaphors they have available to them. So knowing that, I find it hard to imagine what an afterlife would really be like. Because I know all these descriptions I have are filtered through people's individuals, individual perspectives and backgrounds. So I do, I do feel very comfortable now with not knowing the answers, 
which was not true when I started doing this work originally. I thought, oh, we're going to have the answers very soon. And now I'm pretty sure we will never have the answers in a way that we can describe in words. If I do survive death, I will certainly not be surprised, but I have no idea what it's going to be like. Yes, and, and this, brings, this brings me to a kind of an idea and a kind of philosophy that I've had for many years. And this is the fact that, you know, language in general is always a close approximation of experience. And sometimes, you know, maybe we've convinced ourselves that it is close, but pure reality uh, as experienced by an individual like me or you is always, I mean, if we were able to shut down the filters of language, which is something I do in meditation, for example, I try to really shut off the, the inner voice and right. you experience things in a very different way. And I guess, and this was what I mentioned at the beginning, I mentioned the outer body experience. Yes. Well, it was very difficult for me to put it into words. Uh, and part of it, and in fact, part of it, I still cannot fully describe. I can bring you mm -hmm. close to it. Uh, but, and, and also, and, and another thing about that, it wasn't very, it was partially pleasant, but the other half was quite scary because I was under mm -hmm. the impression that I was dying. Actually, I was quite certain I was dying right? Uh, because I had the paralysis um, effect after and um, heard things, you know, heard like static and other things but i guess this and, and you know this brings me to the idea and i mentioned I, I was nihilistic uh before having this and i guess many concepts that came from spiritual and religious traditions i could never um really get close to because they didn't make sense to me it was because i was approaching them from a purely rationalistic mindset yes, yes. But after this experience, I realized that, hey, you know, wait a minute, you know, maybe th this isn't the right way of approaching a concept like God, for instance. Maybe it is something that is beyond uh, our logical comprehension or rational comprehension, and it requires more of a mystical uh, worldview, uh, which I think, and, and you mentioned culture, so different places different uh, things that other people are exposed to. Well, I would say that uh, a, a very important aspect of culture and ages to keep in mind is also like what kind of consciousness is, uh, is the mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. So what kind of states of consciousness are um, considered normal? And I would say if we read a lot of like the, the writings from the Middle Ages in Europe, the mystical approach was probably much more um, normal than the ultra rational approach that came after the Enlightenment. So we gained something, but we lost something else, if that makes sense. So, right. I know what you're saying. Uh, and there certainly are other cultures even today that have much, much more of a mystical mindset than, than ours does. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence that when you get into this mystical state, it's beyond words. Uh, the problem with reaching truth by that means is that you can't then share it with other people because you can't use words to express it. So it's a very individualistic experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, makes and, it kind of, and, that makes it hard to do research on something like that. 
Right. And so, and let's, let's go, let's move into more of the research and your, your books, because you're, you're releasing a, a new book now, but in terms of how you approached it. So you have, for instance, you've published uh, a standardized questionnaire on near death experiences. And that's one way of trying to quantify, right? The possibility right. that a person may have had this. Um, what other ways have you done? I mean, I can imagine some biographical type of research or, or what else have you uh, and your colleagues done? to explore? Right. Well, we're a little bit limited because we can't predict who's going to have a near-death experience before it actually happens. We've looked at all the obvious things, you know, race, gender, age, religious background, religiosity, and none of those will predict whether you're going to have a near-death experience when you come close to death or what kind you, you may have. Um, so we can't do before and after studies to see how people have changed. All we can do is interview people and see what they think uh, was the effect of the experience on them. And of course, we can interview significant others and see if they noticed any changes between before and after. We've also, since we've been doing this research for about 45 years now, been able to look at how the stories change over the decades. And, you know, I mentioned before that Ian Stevenson had collected near-death experiences, what we now call near-death experiences, before Moody gave us a name for it, before anybody knew what near-death experiences were supposed to be like. So I went back to his original files and picked out a couple of dozen cases of the more elaborate ones, and then found recent cases that I collected that were matched according to age, gender, uh, race, religion, religiosity, how they came close to death. I matched those with Ian's originally, original cases. And I found that there were no differences in the phenomenology or in the effects they reported from them before Moody wrote his book, telling people what you're supposed to experience and what we have now. Hmm. So the learning about near-death experiences does not affect the type of experience you have. Also, I've been doing this for so long now that I've been able to go back in recent years and re-interview people that I interviewed originally 40 years ago. And I have found that their description of the experience has not changed at all over the years. There have been some critics of this research who said that as the years go by, the experience gets more and more blissful in, in the retelling. As people forget about the horrible things and just remember the blissful things. And I found in re-interviewing people, that's not true at all. The experiences are eventually identical between when I first interviewed them 40 years ago and today. Wow. Yeah, that's quite surprising. I mean, know, knowing what we know about memory and how often it is quite inaccurate and changes over time, that's that's quite surprising. And so it is, uh, but particularly particularly since near-death experiences happen in situations where you would expect memory to be faulty. They're in crisis situations. They're emotionally laden. Uh, they're often with drugs on board. These things would you would expect them to make the memory faulty, and yet they seem to be pretty stable over time. Right. And this goes back again to what, what you were talking about at the beginning uh, in terms of mind outside of brain uh, and whether what that means for, for memories as well, right? Because that, that opens up a whole new door of possibilities. 
right? There, there are also, there have been scales developed to differentiate memories of events that really happened from memories of dreamed or imagined events. And this was developed originally uh, by a psychologist named Marsha Johnson to look at children who remember, who, who describe uh, childhood abuse. And we wanted to find out whether these were memories of real things or just imagination. And so I used her scale with near-death experiences. And I found that the near-death experiences looked very much like the memories of real events and not at all like memories of imagined events. Now, another group in Italy uh, reported this, this same results, but they also did um, EEG measures, uh, the brainwaves of the, of the patients with as they're interviewing them. Yeah. And again, the electrophysiological evidence look more like memories of real events than like memories of fantasies. So it appears that these memories are stable over time and are not affected by how much you knew about the near-death experience beforehand. And they seem to be uh, suggesting that these are memories of real events. Wow. So would you, I don't know if you, if you've, um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I don't know if you've studied this before, but how does this compare with people who experience psych, you know, who have a psychedelic experience? Because I know that there's a lot of research and, and it's becoming more and more uh, popular now. And, and these people uh, with psychedelic experiences also have um, often paradigm shifting experiences. Uh, they may um, and it may change them in, in a good way, like uh, they may become more open to experience or uh, they experience this love, uh, this connection with everything and our place in that's, the that's, world. That's true. Um, many people who describe uh, drug-induced experiences use the same words as near-death experiencers do. Uh, we've just completed a, a multinational study comparing the accounts of, I think it was around 700 near-death experiences with 15,000 drug-induced experiences. And we looked at the word usage in those two different types of experience. And they were very similar in a number of different, uh, with a number of different drugs, the drugs that came closest to producing an account that sounded like a near-death experience were ketamine and DMT, dimethyltryptyline which, by the way, work with very different mechanisms. However, uh, people who have had both experiences, both a drug experience and a near-death experience, say they are not the same thing. Hmm. And they compare it to watching a movie about war and actually being in a battle. You may use the same words to describe what you're seeing and hearing, but the experience is totally different. When you're in a battle, there's no question in your mind that this is a real experience. Whereas when you're watching a movie, you know it's an imitation of the real experience. And people who have had both say, that's the way it is with drug-induced experiences and with near-death experiences. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So it's not, because I've also heard it uh, kind of, again, like in, in a materialistic approach, I've heard it said, like, well, a lot of these NDEs are just... Uh, you know, the, the brain uh, creating some kind of hallucination. It's, it's similar to something like somebody taking uh, DMT, for example. But you're saying that there are people who have had experience, both of those 
states say that it's quite different. So the NDE is much more powerful than even the psychedelic trip. Right. Now, of course, some of that may be the context. We know when you take a drug, you know you're doing something to alter your state, your mental state. So part of you knows I'm doing this myself. And that may lead you to dismiss some of the effects of it. Whereas if you have a near-death experience, you weren't expecting it. You weren't wanting it. It came unbidden and takes you by surprise. And it may be much harder to dismiss that as just, oh, something I did by taking the drug. So that alone may make it have more of an impact on your life. Right. Some of the research being done now at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore with psilocybin has shown that given the proper context for the drug trip, a dose of psilocybin can produce a truly mystical state that has long-term decrease in, in anxiety about death. Yes. Now, the way they do their research at Hopkins is a very controlled environment with a lot of support, a lot of, um, I don't want to say mystical, but, but very relaxing meditative surroundings. Um, and that may be very different from the typical uh, person who takes ketamine or DMT or something else. Right. And, and I can, I'm just imagining now, uh, there's something there, like in terms of what, what you're describing, for instance, at the John Hopkins uh, study, there's kind of this emphasis on safety comfort, which to me, I I mean, I imagine somebody who would be going on a psychedelic trip would kind of be, you know, in the woods or uh, taking this kind of, you know, going into the woods, which also could could symbolize going into your own consciousness, bringing things out of the unconscious and exploring and, and it's not safe, you know, there's it's, uh, it, you know, stuff that we, we may have deep down inside um, may not be pleasant, but we have to confront it. And, and I connect this with an NDE in some way, I guess what I've read uh, from people who've experienced that, uh, a lot of people who have this, at least from what I read, was they, they start to reconsider their lives. Yes. And maybe yes. say, okay, I have, you know, I still have some years to go. Maybe, uh, you know, I don't like this job I'm in, or I don't, uh, you know, I, I need to express myself more and, and things like that. Is that something you've come across? Very definitely. <clears throat> Many people who have a near-death experience say that they relived their lives, uh, their, their entire lives in the experience. And that's a learning experience for them. And they sometimes experience what they've done in the past from another person's perspective. Let me give you an example of that. One man who was working under his truck when the truck slipped off its, its uh, jacks and cr- came down on his chest, the whole four-ton truck crushing his chest. He had a near-death experience in which he relived, he said, his entire life. And once the incident came back to him when he was a teenager, Uh, He was driving in a car and some uh, drunk person uh, almost ran in front of his car and almost got hit. He rolled down his window and started yelling at the guy. And the guy then reached into his open truck window and slapped him across the face. Well, that made this young teenager irritated. So he jumped out of his truck and started hitting the guy. And he knocked him, he knocked him to the ground and kept beating him with his fists 32 times. Then he got back in his truck 
and walked and drove away. Well, when he had his near-death experience, he relived that whole scene from the drunk man's perspective. He saw himself getting enraged. He felt his own fist coming into his face, knocking out his teeth 32 times, and he felt all the humiliation and the anger and the pain of this drunk man he was beating up. And he awoke from that near-death experiencing experience with a strong sense that we are all the same. We are not individual, isolated from each other. And what you do to someone else, you're basically doing to yourself. And that totally changed his life. And I've heard similar things from many, many people who had near-death experiences, that what they come back from most of all is that we are not alone in this and that the way you treat someone else is the way you're treating yourself. You know, some of our critics will say, this is just an old tired cliche of the golden rule, treat other people as you would like to be treated. Well, that's true. I think that's because most of our major religions, which all have some variation of the golden rule in their precepts, are founded by people who had mystical experiences like near-death experiences. Yes, And that's where they learn this idea that it's true, that how you treat other people is ultimately how you end up treating yourself. Yeah, and that's quite a powerful, quite a powerful story you just shared. Yes. Uh, and I would say, yeah, and this is this can go even beyond just other people. I'm, I can, I, I can imagine that with this evolution, I, I, I see it as I see these things as an evolution of consciousness that takes mm. place, and we can also integrate within the sphere of oneness, uh, other sentient beings, animals, plants, living organisms. And who knows what else? And this is this is where I reconnect with the idea that maybe we greatly underestimate um, the power of our mind, the power of who, and and also we have an identity crisis in terms of we don't really know um, who we are, like where where we come from, what what is our you know our uh, role here? I mean, are we here to experience to help? each other out you go you get to the golden rule but i don't know what what your take is on this well it's hard to live in such close contact with near-death experiences and i've talked to thousands of them by now without being infected by some of their own ideas mm. and what they come across with again and again is that well yes the near-death experience taught me something about death but more importantly it taught me about life and how we should live our own lives to make them more meaningful and more fulfilling. And a lot of that comes down to just being nice. Um, you know, working with other people, with other beings, um, as if they were the equivalent of you. They often come back saying that now I appreciate that we're all part of the divine, that I am divine, but so are you, and so is everyone else you meet. And they treat someone as if they're treating the divine in that person. Yeah, it's and it and this brings brings it back to the to the spiritual ideas, which it seems like work like your own work is kind of connecting the the science and the and the religion. Well, the science and the spiritual, even though yes. uh, what you describe is is part of many world religions. So, um, but, yes, yeah. And could you tell us? Uh, could you tell us a little bit? Because you're you're uh, going to have a new book coming out, right? Right, right. Uh, my new book is called After, 
um, a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about uh, life and beyond. I started out writing basically a, a textbook of what I, everything I've learned about near-death experiences in a half century. And as I was doing this, it caused a lot of soul searching. And I realized that it's changed me a great deal doing this research. And I had to write not only about the near-death experience, but how it's changed me as well. So this book, After, talks not only about the facts we've learned about near-death experiences, but their implications for society, for what we think about mind and brain, what we think about life and death, and what we think about how to lead a meaningful and fulfilling life. And I give anecdotes not only from the near-death experiencers, um, but also from my own life and how it has affected me. Um, and, and it's also um, the story of my conversion, so to speak, from a hardcore materialist who was quite skeptical to one who was very open to spiritual ideas, but still very skeptical. And, and I guess this is a, a great way of being, is to be open and, and ultimately to come back to the original uh, meaning of the word skeptical, which has kind of, it's been misunderstood and misinterpreted mm. as just being this great uh, doubter, this person who doubts. I'm right. skeptical. But in reality, a, a skeptic is somebody who researches that's what the original wor wording meant was skeptic is research. So if you're right. open-minded and you're willing to explore certain claims or others experiences, that makes you a true skeptic, not a, it's yes. kind of, it's kind of like what we were saying before with the science uh, as a, you know, this, this materialist belief system rather than a tr the true scientific um, method, right. Of experiment. Exactly. Yes. So, Yes, absolutely. And you've so you've when did you start with your research? Uh, again, you've, you said you've been doing it for five decades. Well, I really started in 1975 when I came across Raymond Moody. I had um, encountered a few NDEs actually before that, but didn't know what to make of them. And just kind of tried to push them out of my mind, saying, thinking that they were isolated cases. But um, after I met Moody, I realized that there were hundreds of these that had been described previously by doctors and realized I, I need to start looking at this. Um, something I couldn't understand. And as a skeptic, that means you want to dig in and try to understand it. Absolutely. And in terms of your, in terms of your work, where is it? What was there? Uh, was there some, uh, you know, some difficulties at first in terms of reception uh, and were there any particular places where it was mostly uh, welcomed? like in terms of countries, if it, how was the reception in the United States, for instance? Well, I, you know, I think um, since I've done all of my work in the United States, um, that's the only context I really have for describing it. And it, it varies a great deal. There have been some places where my work has been welcomed and some places where it hasn't. Um, in my own university now, the University of Virginia, uh, you see the same uh, variability. There, there are some people who think this is fantastic material that's really opening up new doors. And some people feel like you're just talking about superstition and you should stop, stop researching it. It's the same as with the general public, that some people accept this as legitimate and some people don't even want to look at it. And some of that is based on your own personal experience. 
if you've had an experience yourself as you have, or if you know people who have had, you're much more open to it. If you've never known about these things, then you're less likely to be open to hearing about it now. Indeed, and, and this is something that relates to personality as well, because just speaking for myself, uh, if, if it had been, I don't know, 15 years ago and we would have this conversation, I would just think, okay, this is maybe interesting, but it doesn't relate to me in whatsoever. And so I've, I've come, I've also converted in a way uh, into mm. a more Gnostic understanding of the world and of spirituality in the sense that it is what, what knowledge comes from experience. And uh, I guess may, maybe with maturing, uh, you can also become more open-minded uh, and inquisitive. But for me, it, it, that, that spark had to come from my own lived experience and, and this uh, quite extreme uh, experience. So Right. I, I think you're right that our personality has a lot to do with how open we are to unexplained experiences. On the other hand, as you experience, you experience yourself, sometimes an experience can be so powerful that it changes your personality in that regard and it can open you up. Yes, definitely. And okay, and in terms of uh, well, some certain thoughts that you would like to leave the audience, and then we will talk about where they can find your work. But um, what would you say to them that the most useful or practical things that they can implement in their own lives from, from your research? Well, one of the most profound things that people say after a near-death experience is that they are no longer afraid of death or dying. And that's powerful for us because most of us have a fear of death and a fear of dying. And if we could learn that death is not something to be feared, that would make the quality of life a lot better for most people, not only in your own dealings with daily life. You know, people who, who are no longer afraid of death, we psychiatrists sometimes think that's going to make them more suicidal. And in fact, it does just the opposite. And when I ask near-death experiences about this, they say, well, if you're not afraid of death, that also makes you not afraid of life because you're not afraid of taking risks anymore. You're more willing to live life to the fullest and enjoy every minute of it. And that's something else we can learn from the near-death experience, that because death is not something to be feared, you are freed up from that fear to live life to the fullest every day. And, and also, I hope, I also would hope that people would, would learn from near-death experiences that the, what we think we know is not the whole answer, that the brain is not the only cause, only uh, producer of the mind. The mind is not simply what the brain does. And if that's the case, then it's possible that the mind may persist after the brain and body die. And these things may make us less fearful and more willing to open up our lives and live more fully. Yes, and that is a great point. And I can imagine that not only does this idea or this notion of being less fearful of death would have a great change or impact on people's lives, it would change the, the philosophy of, um, of our culture or, or many culture. Mm -hmm. I think that um, if people are not afraid of dying and, um, you know, the, 
they're less likely to be manipulated and uh, mm-hmm. controlled by others because it's like, well, what, what's the, what's the worst thing you can do, right? If you're, if you're right. free, you're, you're basically freed from this chain, these chains of uh, materiality. And yeah, and this is bringing back like a, a spiritual uh, perspective. And it may be why uh, like people like the early Christians were persecuted. Maybe their, uh, you know, their philosophy was too, uh, too free. You know, it was uh, the, the Romans couldn't, yes. couldn't tax them or they couldn't, uh, couldn't control them because they were, what would they threaten them with? They would be open. Exactly. Yeah. So this is, this is fascinating. Uh, Bruce, are, is there anything else you would like to mention regarding your new book or, or anything else on the, on the matter? Well, let me refer people to my website, which tells more about myself, my book, uh, the research on near-death experiences. It's www.brucegrayson.com. That's B-R-U-C-E-G-R-E-Y-S-O-N.com. And there's descriptions of what's in the book. And there's also uh, ways to pre-order the book, which will be available on bookshelves on March 2nd. Great. And I will, of course, leave the uh, descriptions on the show notes so everyone can access and uh, check out the website. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, Bruce, it was, it was a pleasure to have you on, and uh, I hope to talk again in the future. Thank you all for listening in. And uh, if you would like to support the show, please uh, donate to the, to the PayPal link. And uh, I look forward to more guests. And we will have also uh, more of the solo cast episodes uh, coming up. So take care, everybody, and uh, catch you next time.